Okay, welcome uh, everyone to the Guardians of the Flame podcast. I have a special guest. Um, I should ask, are you Dr. Samuel Sarpia? Is that your full title? What's uh, your full title? Uh, I will tell you what people call me, not what <laughs> I, I prefer Samuel Sarpia, very simple. Yeah, okay. But I, in places in the halls of, in the ivory towers of academia, they call me Dr. Sarpia. Uh, okay. In the church, uh, bureaucratic world, they call me Reverend Dr. Samuel Sarpia. <laughs> okay. So uh, Samuel is uh, is a great guy. He's um, we'll we'll touch on his past in a minute, but uh, he's born in Nigeria, lived in South Africa, and for the last uh, more than a decade, been living in the United States in uh, Rockford, Illinois. I guess the second biggest city in Illinois. Um, and Samuel has also been uh, for this is his third year of being the moderator of the Church of the Brethren in the United States. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and the uh, Church of the Brethren, he maybe we'll touch on it, is a one of these peace churches uh, with a strong history of peace, um, uh, theology of peace, um, going back to the Reformation. Uh, and so you're a fascinating, um, fascinating guy, you know, from you know a Nigerian uh, moderator of a, a largely white American <laughs> denomination. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, you've been in the world of academia, but also very much an activist. Uh, you've studied Martin Luther King's philosophy of nonviolence, and so you're. It's just it's great to have you here in Northern Ireland. It's great to have you part of this podcast. And I suppose just to restate the vision of the podcast, uh, part of it is to int- interview interesting people. Uh, what is probably common about most of the people we interview is that there's a there's some kind of faith or a, a, at least a wrestling with the implications of what faith can hold in a society um, how faith can be both toxic and it can be healing and you're definitely someone who in your life in the last 20 years have brought healing faith at work in poor communities in South Africa or the inner city of America and so it's great to have you with us, Samuel. So thank thanks. you so much. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you just well, let's start with more recently, the last kind of decade of your life. Um, tell us what you've been doing, um, and then maybe we'll go back even further, and then we'll come to the future after that. So. Oh, Johnny, this is sort of to paint the last ten years of my life or the last decade of my life. It's it's been really a roller coaster up and down. Uh, I will the, the the metaphor that I will describe use to describe the last ten years of my life is living and drinking from a fire hydrant, <laughs> okay. and I will unpack what that really means by living and drinking from a fire hydrant. Uh, the last decade, I have I responded to a call to be a church planter mm. for the Church of the Brethren, and the Church of the Brethren is a historic peace church, mm. uh, stemming from our peace theology and Anabaptist. Uh, practice. But beyond peace uh, church planting, I am a community organizer. And in the midst of all of this, as a church planter, community organizer, peace activist, I was privileged to study at the University of Rhode Island, the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Study, the life and philosophy of Dr. King. Mm. And in the same bread, I was able to go to my denominational seminary to do my MDiv in uh, conflict transformation. Yeah. 
as well as eventually my doctoral studies from the uh, George Fox University in Portland and in uh, semiotics and future studies where I focus my area of interest in my doctoral studies is a semiotic approach to conflict transformation. Uh, looking at it for uh, from a very historical peace tradition as well as my own personal uh, lived theology of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in in an age where conflict seemed to just uh, engulf every facet of society. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And then um, tell us, uh, we'll go back into the story of Rockford, Illinois, and what you've been doing there, but. Before you came to the United States, you were. Um, can you yeah tell us a bit about your own upbringing, then where you, leaving Nigeria, going to South Africa, and how maybe even how that's shaped your life a little bit? Yeah, you know, um, I recently, when I say recently, it's in the last about twenty years. I discovered a word that oh, there is a calling called peace and justice and reconciliation, <laughs> that you can tag yourself with that kind of a title. But prior to that, I I grew up in Nigeria in a very large family. Uh, My father was uh, this father that is so passionate about uh, defining the future for all his kids. (laughs) And so when it came my time to be able to tell me what he wants me to become, he said, you will become an attorney. And obviously, an attorney, in my mind as a teenager, I'm like, yeah, you can be an attorney. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this story, but I'm going to say it's kind of paint a picture. It's like Johnny and his mother driving in the bus, in the the car, and Johnny doesn't want to sit down. And mom said, Johnny, sit down, but not you, Johnny. (laughs) And Johnny said, I'm not going to sit down. And mom pulled over and she said, I have a paddle. And Johnny said, I might be sitting down on the outside, but in the inside, I am standing. <laughs> so when my father said, you're going to be an attorney, that was basically what I said. I said, you might get me to, you might define me as an attorney, but in the, uh, in the outside, I will look like be going to study your, what you want me to do, but on the inside, I will do what I want to do. And in rebellion, I went to study social work. But, you know, what I have found out in my social work study is that, uh, like the story of Joseph, what his parents, what his brothers intended for evil, God still redeemed it. And Joseph became a prime minister in Egypt without going into unpacking that theology. So that became kind of my my lifeline. What I thought I was intending as a rebellion from my parents end up becoming what God has really wired me to be a social Mm. worker. Mm. So, because soon after graduating from social work, I find myself doing the work of reconciling people that are broken, people that are trafficked into prostitution, Mm. people that are on the street, uh, trafficked into drug dealers. And I find myself doing the work of reconciling them to God and reconciling them to society uh, through an inner city ministry back in Nigeria. And that relationship took me all the way to, that kind of work took me to Europe. And from Europe, I came in contact with YWAM and I said, I like those crazy folks in YWAM. (laughs) Uh, because I've always seen mission as so you get sent by a church or get sent by somebody who pays you, but this radical young people, which this is before the turn of the century, were just doing something really radical. And I fell in love with YWAM and so decided to go to Jeffreys Bay to do my DTS, which is Jeffreys Bay in South Africa. Mm. And so when I showed up in Jeffreys Bay to do my DTS, uh, you know, you can take a social worker out of uh, the context 
that social worker remains mm. uh, a social worker. Yeah, and DTS for those you know, I guess is the entry level kind of faith formation program that people who join that evangelical organization, Youth with a Mission, kind of go through. So, yeah, it's all over the world. So that was kind of this experience you you went through in Jeffreys yeah. Bay. So in Jeffreys Bay, I became, I, Jeffreys Bay is a community that's really broken mm. uh, without going into the deep history of apartheid, but apartheid has really wrecked the nation. And so uh, Jeffreys Bay, the, the YWAM location in Jeffreys Bay is right between the border of the township which is the poor, poor community. And Jeffreys Bay is a touristy town, is a coastal town uh, for those who love surfing, wave surfing, not internet surfing like me. Uh, really, is their surfer's paradise. I think it has the longest wave in the world or something like yes, that. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so in Jeffreys Bay, I found myself working, engaged in a community that's broken. At that point, there was about 60% HIV mm. infection amongst teenagers. Wow. And high school dropout was at 70% because uh, 60-70%. And the reason is the only high school in Jeffreys Bay is 11 kilometers from Jeffreys Bay. Mm -hmm. And when people are struggling for food, what can you do? Go to high school? Uh, mom and dad doesn't uh, have enough to put bread on their table. Think of paying for transportation. And so all these teenagers were dropping out of school. And so they're in, again, my social work kicks in and began to bring them together. And the way the community of Jeffreys Bay is divided is divided amongst color lines. Mm. Uh, for those that are not South Africans will not understand this thing called colored, uh, white, Indian, black, and yeah. So the South African apartheid system systematically divided people by if you are either colored, and colored means you speak Afrikaans, that's my own layman's definition. Uh, this is not a textbook definition. You speak Afrikaans, and somewhere um, along your ge genealogy, there's some crossbreed between white and Khoisan. And even though some uh, colored people can be really dark-skinned, like no different from the African-Africans. And then you have the black South Africans. And so in the division of the township, it's even separated along color lines. So when I started reaching out to this community and building some form of reconciliation and a community center where everyone is tooled with a skill, uh, little did I know, because I was coming from Nigeria, I wasn't really cognizant of the historical nature of the mm -hmm. division. So I just brought everyone together, uh, colored, uh, black, and even some of my white folks were just coming into the community. And so that became a place that I really began to realize that something different is happening. Why mm -hmm. am I seeing this category group of people mm -hmm. getting together, banding together and working together and I don't see in a larger society? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so the realization at that point is that there's some reconciliation and healing happening here. And so those were the moments that the light bulbs begin to turn on for me that I have always been called and entrusted with the Minister of Reconciliation. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And so it's interesting that you um, you would have been a black Nigerian African coming to South Africa, where uh, you know you never grew up under a system of apartheid, but but a black South African would have. So you would mm. have been quite different. You know, there would have been a different kind of undertaking. And then when you ended up going to America, you're also a black African surrounded by African Americans. And again, it's a very different kind of feeling. So is that a kind of a common thread in your life that you kind of 
you you have a kind of a perspective maybe somehow yeah i will say growing up in nigeria is actually looking at it in retrospect now it's it's been a blessing because i grew up in a destination that is all black and with even though colonialism had played its role but the colonial impact is not very visible like i see in south africa or the racial division that i see in the us in north america and particularly the United States of America. And so that has become an advantage for me. And so that liminal position where I am neither African-American with the historical context nor white American with the historical context. So I I think I've blown, I've said, and stepped on toes. I've said things that probably is very offensive. I have done things that probably has been very offensive, but in my ignorance. But at the same time, that ignorance of not having the historical uh, narrative of the place allows me to be able to be prophetic mm. and to be able to call the two parties and be mm. neutral because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to, I, would not, I wouldn't know what it means to take sides, but to give facts, truth in love as well as bring justice to both ends. Mm. Yeah, no, I've always had a similar kind of outlook while living over here, because although I've lived here 35 years, I have a kind of a funny accent and can pretend to be the New Zealander, the blow-in, you know, from overseas. So I can, uh, it gives you grace to say things and do things and walk down roads that normally you wouldn't get the opportunity to do. So, um, yeah, so I, I think... Maybe a lot of times people who end up in that kind of reconciliation sphere somehow have that kind of, there's that identity about them where they can kind of fit into places that others can't, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, is it, um, was there anything else about the kind of your South African experience that then prepared you for what you ended up going into from there? Uh, I think the South African experience was, like I mentioned, that that was when I realized that I have a calling to. Uh, I began to notice a sense of a call into the Ministry of Reconciliation, Peace and Justice. That prepared me. So when I went, when I moved to, first of all, in Ho to Hawaii to work with you to the mission at the University of the Nation and eventually responding to the call to be a church planter for my denomination in Illinois, Wisconsin. District. We, we, the country is divided by district. We okay. have 24 districts in the U.S. Mm. So this particular district uh, called me to be a church planter in Rockford, Illinois. And a little bit about the history of Illinois, Rockford, Illinois. Rockford, Illinois is 60 kilometers, not uh, 60 miles, sorry, mm -hmm. northwest of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, so we border in Wisconsin to the north and uh, to the west is Iowa. And what happened is Rockford, Illinois, is being historically known as one of the industrial Midwest. Mm -hmm. It has been a capital of tool and machining. And at one point, Rockford, Illinois, was the furniture capital in the country because oh, okay. it's got a, a large Swedish immigrant settlement. <laughs> is that right? Wow. Yeah. What, what's the rough population? Uh, the rough population of just its, the outlining areas is about 350,000. Okay. Uh, just not the city. So mm -hmm. Rockford is the major hub for all of the regions. Mm -hmm. And so Rockford is known as a furniture capital. Rockford is known as a tool and die capital. Mm -hmm. And yet this uh, Rockford 
has its own history of race and race relation. Uh, the city of Rockford is naturally divided into two, the east and the west side. The west side is predominantly African-American and white, uh, poor white, mm. very few. While the east side of Rock Rockford is predominantly Caucasian and then you find a trickle of um, middle, upper class uh, African-Americans that have made it educated that are living on the east side. Uh, but the divide is so glaringly clear that when you are African-American or person of color in in Rockford, you almost, uh, nobody tells you that you belong to the west, in the west side, but mm -hmm. that's by default. And so that's the kind of the visible division that exists in the city. Mm -hmm. And so when I got called to plant a church, when I showed up, my denomination had been in Rockford for a little, about a hundred and some years, mm. uh, but put a historic peace church and had done some radical longing to do some integration in the city, which the church is actually on the west side, mm. but it is on the far west side, which is white, white, white denomination. So everybody uh -huh. still drive to the church. Okay. So, but the church had dwindled in size. Uh, because it feels like it's transplanted in a location that it doesn't really fit in. Mm. And so... So uh, the west side would be where the, most of the African-Americans would live. Yes. And the east side is more is 100% white. It's very predominantly, white, predominantly white. Predominantly white, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and... So when I arrived at the city of Rockford, I, as a church planter who has this peace tradition and a peace DNA, in my sense, and a sense of a calling of reconciliation, I showed up in this city and I realized that I am faced with the reality of what I thought I have learned in South Africa. That just fly right in my face. doesn't work easily like that because I'm coming into a new culture. And so I took time to study the culture. But uh, before, in my studies of the culture, I spent the first three months literally prayer working around the entire city. Hmm. I took the public transportation, every single place that there's a bus stop, I have been in every single neighborhood in the entire city of Rockford. Wow. So, because I was praying, God, give me a heart for this city. Give me, uh, give me a lead as to what is it that we, I, can be used of you to do in the city because oftentimes church planters, I did go to mm. church planting school. We mm. were f told, informed in a way, uh, you go, if you want 1,000 1, people to show up in your church on the first lunch, send out 10,000 flyers mm -hmm. and send it seven times mm -hmm. before the official day of the lunch. Wow. Uh, sort of like a model in, in America, we call it like the Walmart model <laughs> of opening a shop. With right. a ribbon cutting, you give free tickets, free gifts, and mm. promise a car and do a raffle. <laughs> and all of that didn't work for me. So I realized that's a slap in the face. And so I took them. I, I never remember Jesus talking about that in the Sermon on the Mount. They <laughs> 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 <Yes. laughs> promise people a free car, <laughs> get, <Yeah>. send <laughs> out 10,000 flyers. Yes. <laughs> Blessed are the flyer givers. But they shall get a mega church. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, and as I seek the face of God, I'm really sick our community. I realize that I'm supposed to build bridges. So I signed myself up in all of the different uh, clergy groups. Mm. It's interesting. 
that a city has four different clergy associations. Hmm. There's the Greater Rockford Clergy, there's the Rockford Ministers Fellowship, there's the Evangelical Ministers Alliance, and uh, the Baptist Fellowship. Okay. And uh, so each of this has a polarization of oh, race. Wow. So, and yeah. there's a few other white folks that are that I find themselves in most of this. So I was building this relationship, and finally I thought to myself, now I've made it. I, mm. I think I have attained in my relationship. So now, what is the next phase? So soon as I thought that things were beginning to look positive, and I am doing some evangelism work, mm. uh, building a little core group of people mm. to be part of my church. Mm. Uh, we were having coffee at Starbucks, and we were taking over Starbucks on Sunday afternoon. Mm. It started with two, four, by the time we hit 20, mm. two o'clock on Sunday afternoon, everybody shows up, buy a cup of coffee, and we're having church. Mm. Basically, <laughs> we take over Starbucks without telling them, without mm. renting their space. Mm. So, but we were having discussions on what does it mean to be a church mm -hmm. that understands the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. So as a church planting pastor, I was exploring that with a group of very mixed racially because the meeting was in Starbucks, which is on the east side of town. And that means I can haul a couple of my uh, African-American friends to mm -hmm. uh, Hispanic folks to this conversation mm -hmm. that, do, that cannot drive. But we're having very vibrant conversation. And so right aside, since we're, we're beginning to look positive, two white police officers shot a teenager in the basement of a church. Oh. This is pre-Ferguson, pre-St. Uh, Louis, pre-all the racial Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. This is in 2009. Uh, this was in 2009. And so at that point, I saw all the relational currency that I thought I had amongst all this clergy association just disappeared in one day. Mm. And I began to wonder, so what can we do as a church? Mm. And you see, I have, at this point, I had gone to start, I had started attending the University of Rhode Island, the Center for uh, Nonviolence and Peace Studies, and I was studying the life of Dr. King mm. and the King's philosophy and the King's principle of social change and transformation, and really getting the philosophy and the theology behind King's, the theology behind King's philosophy, even though uh, the University of Rhode Island, they don't really talk more about his theology because it's a secular institution, mm -hmm. but they cannot run away from his faith formation. Right, yeah. Of uh, Dr. King's faith and his conviction about mm -hmm. his pilgrimage to nonviolence. So you were kind of studying about Martin Luther King, philosophy of nonviolence, conflict transformation, and in the midst of that, two white police officers shoot dead an uh, unarmed 14-year-old kid? Uh, no, 17-year-old 17-year-old African-American kid in the basement of a church. And if, okay, what really made it more gut-wrenching is there were about 20 kids next door to where he was shot. Mm. And he had no knife, he had no gun. Uh, and so, and but but so the city erupted in, in riot. And so here am I confronted with the existential reality of. So what do I do with all the knowledge I'm learning mm. uh, on the six principles of King and nonviolence, on the six steps to King and nonviolence? It's sort of we just number it six steps. It's not mm. in progression. You can mm. take uh, mm. anyone. And the first principle that I learned in King's philosophy of nonviolence is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. Mm. So it takes courage to be nonviolent. Mm. It takes boldness and confidence and just the Jesus way and the Jesus' approach to addressing change. Mm. 
uh, because Jesus confronted the Pharisees. Uh, he did not, uh, Jesus did not just criticize, he confronted and seek to address and change the condition that the Pharisees themselves found themselves in under. And so after this shooting, the first week, there was a peaceful, there was a march mm -hmm. from the city, from the Justice Center, which is on the west side of town, mm -hmm. to the City Hall, which is on the east side of town. And then a week later, and in this match, there was predominantly African-American and a few white folks. And a week later, there was 99.9% match from the city hall, which is on the east side of town, to the justice center. And by the justice center is where the prison is. And the prison is smacked right down in the west side of town, a visible reminder mm. for African-American community that this is the destiny. This is your college. Right. Wow. Because of mass incarceration in mm -hmm. the U.S. And so, and I happened to be, I had, at this point, I'd already become a police chaplain. So I happened to be on chaplaincy duty. Mm. And as a chaplain who's on chaplaincy duty on this second match, I need to be present to be aware of what's going on in the city. Mm. And I watched this match and I saw a city divided. Mm. And I was reminded, I said, are the peacemakers. Mm for they shall be the sons and daughters of God. Mm. So here am I faced with the reality of my uh, peace mm. tradition, mm. the reality of the conviction of my studies at the University of Rhode Island, mm. and then the existential reality of this conflict that is that the city is faced with. So I, the first thing that I did was I organized the community. I began to go into some of the principles, apart from this, uh, some steps to organize, to bring in social change is gather enough information, information gathering. And so as I gathered that information, I gathered a group of people to educate them on the condition. Mm. And in those process of education, I was educating myself as I'm learning and I'm sharing. And then the third is begin to ask for personal commitment from those that are participating. Because this is a simple six steps that King's philosophy is all about. You gather the information, you educate people, then you make a personal commitment. And by personal commitment is to ask the question, am I willing to be able to see this through? Because without personal commitment, uh, this nonviolence way of life, like I said in the first principle, is for courageous people. Mm. And if you do, are not courageous enough, you get burned by uh, all of the forces that are against you. Mm. And then the, the fifth step in this is negotiation. But the goal of all of this is to explore how can we negotiate with the powers that be to enact the institutional change and the social change that we want to see happen. Because the goal of it is reconciliation. Mm. So when if we negotiate and it does not work, we will get into direct action. And by direct action means we will take steps mm. Mm. to really radically disagree right, right. publicly, mm. it's, which calls for public and civil disobedience. Mm. So I was in the six steps. I used the six steps as a means, as a, as a, based on King's philosophy uh, principles, to help educate the commitment, the community on this is the implication of what it means to stand for justice. Mm. This is the implication of what it means to be a non-violence community organizer. Mm. Are we willing to? But informed by my peace tradition 
of Blessed Are the Peacemakers. So through that, I was able to organize a whole bunch of community and we began to address issues. In We began with a pub, one public school called West Middle School. And the history behind West Middle School is it used to be a high school and they closed the high school and moved the only high school on the west side to the east side of town. Mm. And as a result of all of this movement, it has this is following the Civil Rights Act of 1965. And all of that came back roaring in 1989. Mm. So it was a pivotal moment for me as a community organizer, as a church planter, and so as a peace practitioner to be able to put my fate to action mm. and coupled with my studies of king's philosophy uh then this uh, that's when the second principle of king's philosophy i wanted to put into practice the first principle mm. like i said is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people and the second principle is like the beloved community is the framework my hope in this work is that how do we build a beloved community if the beloved community, a community that I want to see a shalom, a beloved community where a peaceable kingdom, a kingdom that is not only by and by when we die and go to heaven, mm. but a kingdom that is here and now that demonstrate that love binds us together in spite of color, in spite of theology, in, in spite of our own identity. Mm -hmm. So if the beloved community is the framework for the future, it then compels me to work towards that beloved community. Mm -hmm. And so that's the second principle in the philosophy of King that I, that I brought into this work of addressing social change in West Middle School. I'm, I'm kind of struck by how um, you started by... <laughs> kind of trying to figure out how to become a megachurch and, and a kind of a strategy for, you know, mar essentially Walmart marketing for church growth to being confronted with the, the reality of racial segregation and, and centuries of injustice and then, and then moving into how to create a beloved community. And that seems so much more the way of Jesus than some kind of cheap marketing trick you know um uh and you mentioned there before you go on and into the the steps and and how that shaped what you did in rockville i just wonder you know you just use this word shalom and obviously we're talking about peace a lot um shalom the hebrew word for peace what does that mean to you like what does shalom look like shalom to me have multi it's multi-dimensional mm. there is a personal and there is a communal the personal means when i find a peace that transcends all understanding based on my understanding of god's love and god's justice the communal means we walk towards reconciliation and justice for all mm. And so as a result of that two dimension and, and the dimension of it, and then what makes it multidimensional is it is not one-sided, but it's a two-way traffic. Just as I long for the shalom of my own self and the shalom of my community, 
that the same people in my community are longing for that same kind of shalom that will be able to become multidimensional. And in that, we seek the peaceable kingdom Mm. of God. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So it kind of, um, it's, it's like this sense of, um, the good, the, the, uh, the Good Samaritan story is about loving uh, your enemy, but also aware that not only do you love your enemy, but, but your enemy could really help you. You know, you could you could really learn from them. You know, so shalom is not a a one dimensional charity uh, yeah. exercise. It's a it's a experience of 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 seeing shalom, peace break out all over the place. Yes, and. It is often mistaken that shalom, people think that because I am in peace with you, we now have to all look the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, In spite of our differences, we still seek the peaceable kingdom of God. So we're not men, shalom does not mean we now all look cookie cutter, the same (laughs) shape and mold Mm. thinking. But the differences, the different rough edges, the puzzle, we all become a different piece in this great puzzle by doing life together. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So why don't you go on a little bit um, into your story in Rockford, you know, from, I kind of interrupted a little bit as you're, you're going. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, I was talking about West Middle School and mm. the historical context of what, how West Middle School became. And West Middle School became a center, an epicenter of violence. And what I mean by epicenter of violence is this is a middle school, 6 to uh, uh, eighth grade, 6, 7, and eighth grade. And, you know, that's the stage in young people's life where all the hormones are, are just going haywire. Mm. The, the hormones and all these teenagers are like a bowl of spaghetti. Mm, mm. And a bowl of spaghetti, you don't know where it's coming from mm. and you don't know where it's headed. Mm. So, um, and so as a result of that, in that public school, every single day, there is fire alarm being pulled three to four times a day, disrupting learning. And so every day, they have, the principals or the administration have to call in police officers to come and arrest teenagers. And this school is predominantly African-American. And what that further intensifies, confirmed to these kids, is that, look, your destiny is a jail. Mm. And once you've gone to juvie, it's a juvenile detention center. So in, in the U.S., oftentimes teenage kids call them juvie. It's kind mm. of like junior varsity. Mm. Once yes. you've gone to juvie, uh, the record begins to stain. Mm. Be, uh, your record begins to get stained. Mm. And maybe for something like food fight on the school premises, mm. which is as a result of the community that they live in. Mm. And so West Middle School, as I said, being the epicenter of anything violence in the city of Rockford, mm. uh, with basically about 40% success rate heading graduating from middle school to high school. And mm. so that means we have a high percentage of dropouts. And let me backtrack a little bit. Mm. Remember I mentioned that this teenager that was shot by two white police mm. officers, he was a dropout from this school. Mm. So that's the connection. Okay. And so I, in my organizing and longing to see this beloved community, you know, and I may say what I might say, well, if it's offensive to anybody, please, I don't mean it to be offensive. How do you eat an elephant mm. one bite at a time? Mm. It's a metaphor, mm. not literal. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
So the metaphor to address in how do we address the conflict and bring a shalom in our community mm. is to address one layer of problem at a time. Okay. Using the social change, the king's philosophy. So we took on that school head on. Mm. And in taking that school head on, we said we're going to work towards addressing the problem because if we can address that school, the ripple effect can affect the community that this school comes from. The most of the kids come from because most of the kids come from a housing project. And in my six steps, I said to you, information gathering, one of the things that I discovered in the information gathering is that the kids in the school, uh, the school district unintentionally created two gang rival gangs in the school. And what do I mean by unintentional? The law of the state of Illinois says, and which I think it's a national law, that if you live less than one mile from the school, you cannot be bused. Mm -hmm. But if you live a mile away from the school, you can be bused. Mm -hmm. So this huge array of housing projects, half the kids get bused to school mm -hmm. and half don't get bused to school. Wow. So there's two rival gangs. Mm -hmm. So is there any reason why we have fire alarm being pulled? That's why we have food fight. And so we went back to the root cause and mm. began to change, address that law in itself mm. through the powers that be, through the education department, mm. as well as create an environment that these kids can feel their voice is being heard, their concern mm. is being heard by recruiting an army of volunteers. But here is the conviction. My conviction is based on a peace theology mm. that we bring peace by listening to each mm. other's story. We bring peace by we. When we listen to people's story, they are able to recognize that they are being heard. Mm -hmm. And in listening, you don't fix, but you are able to share a different perspective. So as we do that by creating, uh, um, recruiting a whole slew of volunteer of good meaning citizens mm -hmm. in that school with one prescription, you are not there to proselytize. And within the first year of our experience, there was a radical shift in the school. Mm. And another thing that I didn't mention is the school in this particular school in five years have, six, had, have had six principles. Mm. So that in itself is a recipe for disaster. Mm. And so uh, we, in gathering the community, in educating the community, we now implement the third principles of what we wanted to do is attacking the forces of evil, not the people doing evil. Okay, wow. The tendency for community nonviolence practitioners is to look at the official that is handling, that is in the office and see them as the people that are evil. Mm. But actually, they themselves are slave to the system that creates that evil system. So in the case of the school district, there is the stupid law that says when you live one mile, you can be or less than a mile. You cannot be. You can be bossed. And by the way, the people that mix the law in Springfield, Illinois, they're packing. All the lawmakers, they're packing is in the basement. They pack in the heated garage and walk to their law mm. to the chambers. And in the meantime, in Northern Illinois, in the winter, God bless anybody to walk one mile in the winter. Wow. Yeah. Because of snow, with wind chill, sometimes goes to us below forty degrees Celsius. Wow. And so, but we expect teenagers. To, su to survive. And the same law that did say, does say that if you live one mile and there's a danger to school, mm -hmm. that you need to be bus. But mm -hmm. the uh, administrators were so rigid 
to follow in the latter of the law, not the spirit mm. of the law. And mm. so we seek to address that evil, not the people implementing it. Okay. So by educating them on the danger. And the result of it was we got the school district uh, who then supported this idea of bossing all the kids okay. to address the problem of violence, hmm. uh, of fighting. Gangs. And, gangs. Yeah. And so that means they're now bodies. Hmm. And so the, that systemic change hmm. spill into, began to spill into the different aspects of our own city. Hmm. Wow. So you're kind of painting a picture of a divided city, east and west, a prison that's right in the middle of the west side, kind of is this warning or is this kind of uh, kind of apocalyptic sign to all the children there that this is your future? Mm-hmm. Um, a system that is of laws that just of unintended consequences that creates gangs and um, a school where the morale is obviously so low that what you said, the longest serving teacher was there for two and a half two years. Two and a half years, yes. So just a constant revolving door of teachers that come in and out. And um, yeah, that's, it's a, that's a very sad picture. And, and I'm very struck by the fact that you say, you know, you realize that evil, you want to fight evil and not the kind of the people. Because um, um, I think that can, you know, I think even here in Northern Ireland, um, Two nights ago, um, Monday, Thursday, the day before Good Friday, um, riots have broken out in, in Derry, London, Derry, the second biggest city in Northern Ireland, and um, a, a new dissident Republican group called the New IRA opened fire, and a young, an amazing young, courageous journalist, Lyra McKee, was was shot dead. Um, and sadly, it's 21 years since our peace agreement, the mm. Good Friday Agreement. Uh, yesterday was Good Friday here. And, um, and, and, you know, you just realize, again, we could say these evil men did this. Or you could say somehow there's an evil in our society that's still at work that needs to be addressed. And if we become obsessed with just chasing after this or that individual and not going towards the underlying issue, then we'll miss the whole point and more lives will be lost, you know, so. Yeah, I am, a, I, I, we need to, as People that seek to see social change need to underline, understand that, that there is an underlying system at play. And those systems can be evil. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for those of us that are called into the Minister of Reconciliation is to begin to address the unjust system because some of our laws are really unjust in itself. Mm-hmm. But because of the lack of awareness of the unjustness of the law or the evil that really creates that law, we further perpetuate the evil by allowing it and going after the people that commits those evil acts. And I'm not saying people that commit evil acts will get away with it, but that let's look for the system and fix the brokenness in the system. If we're able to fix the brokenness in the system, it then eliminates uh, the sense of people using the justified, justifying their actions based on the system that creates mm-hmm. them. And so, in so doing, one of the things that some another principle that has really helped my uh, me to continue in the work of pursuit is to realize that in this work, this is not a cakewalk. Mm. This is not a work in the pack, mm. and. 
part of the principles that one learns from King's way of life, like you look at the history of the civil rights, is to mm. accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause. Mm. Wow. That means we were willing to suffer for our conviction. We were willing to accept whatever pain we will go through. And to continue painting this picture of the public school, when we approached the school district with uh, information and education and the personal commitment, we have rallied the whole community mm -hmm. behind us and say, this is the broken system that we have. So when we approached the school, school administration, and initially they just shrug us off mm. and say, we're just a bunch of rebel rousers. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me of what the clergyman told King in Birmingham, Alabama. And they, said they, they defined King as a rebel rouser and said to him that, King, the time is not yet now. Just allow justice will eventually come to pass. And when you read King's uh, uh, response, letter mm. from Birmingham jail, mm. if you read that letter, it paints the gory theological conviction of who King is mm. and why he was doing what he was doing. Mm. And he was willing to accept suffering, even if it means going to jail for the sake of the cause mm. to achieve the goal. Wow. So in our case in Rockford, we were willing to accept suffering. And so one of the things that we told the superintendent, the leadership of uh, the school uh, administration, which is the superintendent is the head of the school district, is we are going to boycott the entire bus system mm. and we will organize people to transport all the kids in the neighborhood. Mm. Or we will do a walking bus mm. where we will organize the community to walk all the kids to school. Okay. And the goal about that is even if it means we will suffer with these kids, we were willing to accept it. And so in nonviolence, uh, the, the principle and the philosophy behind it is mm. to, it's always count the cost. Like mm. Jesus says, if anyone must follow me, mm. he or she have to lay down his life, mm. pick up his cross and follow me, mm. counting the cost that it will, might cost you your dear lives. Mm. So you were going to walk kids to school in the middle of a... Uh, Northern Illinois winter, and yeah, that, that would have been suffering, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So and so then you saw some things start to change, and and so the result of the change in the public school, but at the same time, in tandem, let me say this: as why he was organizing the community to engage in addressing the systemic change in the school, mm -hmm. there was a second approach that I was taking. How do we change the justice system? Mm. Because the justice system in itself, the three-pronged justice system in America is failing. Mm. And I can say that because everyone has said it. Mm. The three-pronged justice system is the police, the correctional, and the judicial. The three-pronged justice system in America is not, sometimes they don't talk to each other. Mm. The police does the excellent job of arresting whatever. Their job is to arrest crime. <laughs> the judges are to convict or to render just uh, sentences. Mm. And sometimes the conviction, it's so lopsided that mm. you go, what in the world have we just heard? Mm. Can somebody go to life in prison, go to 25 years in jail for um, an ounce of marijuana? I'm not a proponent of marijuana. Mm. Neither am I against marijuana. Mm. But 
how can a judge convict someone, mm. a teenager, for a life sentence, never without parole, for simple crime of narcotics? Mm. So we began to seek to address that. So what I did was I went to the police chief right after the shooting, and I said to the chief, the police chief in Rockford, and I said, uh, Chief, you need to educate your police officers in nonviolence community policing. Mm. I hounded, I knocked on his door for four years. <laughs> By the fifth year, he turned around and said to me, we have seen the result of what nonviolence can do to a society with the example of West Middle School. It is time that the police department goes through that training. Mm -hmm. And in six weeks, we train the police department on community policing using the same King's philosophy of nonviolence mm -hmm. and social change. But in this case, it is reversed. And following that training, it began a total, what I would call a revolution by design in our city. Because all of a sudden, the city of Rockford no longer see policing from a very top-down, we are the people with power, to how do we engage. And mm -hmm. so in engaging uh, our basic tenets of policing from one police district uh, headquarters, the city divided into three police districts. Mm -hmm. And each of these districts uh, was meant to serve as a community center, which it does serve as a community center. I watched, I was even just this past weekend, anytime that there's school holidays, all the three police districts organized basketball camps, mm -hmm. movie nights, and all of this for the kids, which mm -hmm. is un-American-like. <laughs> Because most mm. of our police departments in America, mm. it's like people of color mm. stay away. They mm. will not go close to a police department with a 10-foot mm. pole mm -hmm. because of the racial dynamic. Mm. But the reverse in our, is in our city. Mm. And we have introduced what we call the Residence Officer Community Pro, uh, Program. It's called Rock Officers, where an officer will move into a gang-ridden neighborhood mm. and live there, not because he or her job is to arrest but his job is to be a mediator in the community. Mm. So there's a, a, a phone number mm -hmm. on a yard sign in his house. Mm. And his house is open 24-7 for the community to come. Wow. And it has, this is the third year that that is rolled out. Mm. And I tell you, it is beginning to turn heads, not mm. just in Illinois, but across the country. Mm. Mm. And so that's, again, part of what... Nonviolence, direct mm. action, and social change can happen mm. that is based on the principle of peacemaking and justice. Wow. It seems like, you know, America is, my wife is from Baltimore, and which was immortalized in the TV show The Wire, mm. um, which kind of paints this kind of, uh, kind of Charles Dickens for the 21st century kind of image of a city that's, uh, yeah, like kind of eating itself, you know, with, with crime and education system that's falling apart and a, a corrupt uh, political system and, and all the, you know, every episode of that show kind of unpacks a, a, a further level of the brokenness of a society. And, um, uh, you know, it strikes me that, um, you know, there's just these need for uh, creative imagination, uh, imaginative responses. And I remember going to, is it Sandtown? Is it the area of Baltimore where the kind of the Freddie Gray riots broke mm -hmm. out? Mm -hmm. um, 
And w- while we were there, we inc- we met this group of like, called violence interrupters, and and basically, you know, they would get phoned when there was a fight going on that could degenerate into a, a homicide. And these guys were all kind of um, had been in prison, had served time. Uh, but had had a kind of a transformative experience and were now committed to the the transformation of their communities. And they would get on their bikes with their fluorescent orange T-shirts, you mm-hmm. know, and cycle as fast as they could to this house and come to this fight and try to break it up. But um, So what you're describing is something similar, is kind of ways in which we don't just see justice as retributive, kind of black and white, but as something that's more multi-layered and imaginative and um and so gradually you started to see this town change and that school change and so the school change the police department change and but in the midst of all of this uh we're creating a health i i I tend to be sometimes people call me a dreamer or a visionary (laughs) dreamer i have this ideal of a peaceable kingdom and i have this innate conviction about honestly the kingdom of god it is possible for us to experience heaven on earth. And when I mean heaven on earth, it's not literal, like, oh, but that we can experience the shalom that the kingdom of God has promised us based on the, if we are obedient to follow. So in this work of, it is not, I mentioned it's not a cake work, but one of the things that we're doing is how do we change the narrative and tell a different story of our future together? The police and the community. And I had this brilliant, creative, crazy idea of developing what we call a mobile tech lab. Mm. You see, because of the multi-layer of the socioeconomic system and the brokenness, we need to to continue to build at every level. We cannot just build this peace relationship and police and community hanging out together. But what do we do to continue to empower kids that are disadvantaged? And so I developed what we call the mobile tech lab and the mobile art lab. The mobile tech lab is a 30-foot trailer. We have two 30-foot trailers that have computers and we teach coding because, and again, the reason for teaching coding is Rockford being an, in the tool and die capital mm. and we, from, of manufacturing. And we know manufacturing is gone, gone, gone. Mm. We may never have manufacturing like it happened in the, in, the, in the 20th century. But the new kind of manufacturing that is coming, roaring and surging is computer coding and programming. So how do we look at our history as a manufacturing capital and develop something out of it? So I came up with the idea of having a mobile tech lab to teach kids how to code. And and in collaboration with the police department and the city of Rockford, that is this 230-foot trailer, it's actually live. You can come there and learn computer coding, a boot camp style. And let me tell you a story of, I will not say his name, but just for the sake of his privacy. One of the young men in my community, Justice, but that's a made-up name. Justice came up to me in one of our community block parties. A teenager, 18-year-old, going to an alternative high school because he dropped out of high school. And he looked at me in the eyes and said, Samuel, I don't want to go to jail. And I was startled a little bit by his first 
This is his first intro to me. I don't want to go to jail. Can you help me? I said, uh, what, have, what crime have you committed? He said, I have not committed any crime. And in part of our community policing is we have different neighborhood stronghouses where there are police homes where actually the kids in the community can come and do their homework. So he met me in one of these homes, outside one of these homes. And so when he said he doesn't want to go to jail, I said, we are about to run a coding boot camp. And this is a $10,000 program that we're give offering for free. It's a six-week coding boot camp. Uh, just by the name boot camp tells you it's intense. It's summer. And so if you are interested, I can sign you up. He said, I am. So he said, can I have your number? I gave him my number. I said, call me back uh, by the end of the week, and then I'll tell you exactly what's happening. And he said, to the next day he called me. And I said, yes. I picked up the phone. He said, oh, it's justice. Mm. I said, yeah. He said, I'm just checking. Mm-hmm. The next day he called me. And I said, yeah, but I told you yesterday. He said, you don't understand. People have failed me. Mm. Several times they promise and never show up. Mm. And he said, I'm counting on you. Mm. It dawned on me mm. that I was, that promise was a lifeline mm. of him getting out of the vicious violence life cycle. Fast forward, they came to the boot camp, attended the boot camp, didn't have a computer, come to find out his story. His mother is in jail. His father is in jail. He's living in a boarded house with a bunch of other teenagers smoking dope. And he somehow, I think he's been awakened. And I will say the, probably the spirit of the Lord is talking on him to do something with his life. And right now that I'm speaking to you, he's become one of the great computer coders. And he actually worked for the guy that does offers the computer coding training as one of his uh, uh, programmers. Wow. And here is a young man that the tendency is to end up in jail. But by this healthy alternative of providing, of transforming a potential conflict into a success has been able to veer off this young man. And so that's the power of the collaboration between the, the city of Rockford and uh, what I do called the Center for Nonviolence and Conflict Transformation. To bring transformation, transforming conflict is our, we're in the business of transforming conflict. And we do that through direct action, through social change and education. And so we run the com- computer coding and we run, um, we have a music recording studio where kids can come in because if you you want to get a lot of young uh, African-Americans jiving, get them into a music recording studio. And I tell you, that music recording studio has become a hit. Uh, we have an average of over 5,000 kids every year that wow. goes through our program. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, the critique of um, nonviolent kind of uh, philosophy is that it's passive. And I think what I love about what you're describing is it's anything but passive. You know, you were busy. You landed in the city and you start, you got to work, you know, you started prayer walking, looking around, information gathering, um, and then started to see symptoms of problems and deeper problems and systemic evil, and then starting to address them, which actually involves, which actually ends up with individuals like the justice guy you just described, 
getting his life kind of turned around. Um, I wonder, Samuel, if our neighbor in, in Ross Trevor, Tommy Sands, is a, he's a folk musician and an activist. One of his well-known songs, he has a line in it um, about the Irish conflict. He says, centuries of hatred have ears that cannot hear. An eye for an eye was all that filled their mind, and another eye for another eye, till everyone is blind. Hmm. That was a song about uh, two men that were killed in retaliation for each other. There were roses. And I, when I think about the American situation, which um, I guess uh, the, the world looks at America, you know, to, whether you like it or not, yeah, America is the greatest show on earth, you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, you had this kind of the the... the the incredible, the kind of romantic journey of a uh, of an African immigrant um, uh, marrying a, a white lady, having a son, and him becoming the president of America, Barack Obama, and then you have him replaced by this reality TV show, kind of uh, you know, without kind of being too slagging him off too much. He certainly has white supremacist tendencies. <laughs> um, so when you look at the American situation, um, I, I was telling you before, I, I read a couple of years ago this book by ta Coates, uh, Between the World and Me, mm-hmm. and um, where he was actually also from Baltimore. And he said these words um, in it, which I uh, wrote down. And um, we were enslaved. He's talking to his son, so as an African-American. He mm-hmm. says, we were enslaved in this country longer than we have been free. Never forget that for 250 years, Black people were born into chains, whole generations followed by more generations who knew nothing but chains. You cannot forget how much they took from us and how they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton, and gold. And I guess when you look at those centuries of hatred, centuries of injustice, um, and uh, and they have ears that cannot hear, you know, I think mm-hmm. the sad thing about America is you still it would appear to be much of the population is blind or is deaf to the, the consequences of systemic injustice over centuries. How do you see that kind of past and how do you see the future? You know, what I know one of the things you want to do is create a roadmap. What is it? What is the role for peacemakers in a society? So when you look at America and then I guess for those of us listening on this podcast could be from anywhere in the world, what does it look like to be a peacemaker in a society where you deal with centuries of injustice or centuries of history, mm-hmm. but imagine something hopeful in the future? What is that roadmap? What is that? Actually, there are six things that stand out for me. I kind of have an infatuation with all this King's philosophy on number <laughs> six. It's easy. There's yeah. no affinity with anything number six. It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. just you draw out. <laughs> I think the ongoing struggle is to continue to give people a sense of somebodiness. That they matter to society. That they too can be somebody. Uh, instead of dehumanizing people and making winners and losers, but a, a flip it to on its head to say everybody can be somebody. Just like in the sermon, uh, in King's sermon that he said, uh, that one of the last sermons he preached about drum major for justice. And he said, if I, if you are a street sweeper, then let it be known that there goes the greatest street sweeper because he or she is somebody. Even if it's street sweeping, 
So the ongoing struggle is to restore a sense of somebodyness to everybody across the world, not just in America, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, in places where we see violence and injustice, but it's to seek justice like the prophet Amos says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. And the call to that is you and I, practitioners of nonviolence, cannot just go demonstrate. We have to be able to restore a sense of somebodyness to everybody. And the second aspect is to restore to people a sense of group identity. Uh, the identity of a people have been lost, be it Rwanda, the Tutsis and the Hutus, be it South Africa, the Afrikaners and the English, plus the black South Africans, the Tosas, the Zulus, uh, in, in Nigeria, be it amongst the Hausas, the Igbos and the Yorubas and the Fulanis, uh, just name a place to restore a sense of group identity. And when we are able to restore, and it's not a group identity to show superior versus mm -hmm. subordinate, but a sense of belonging, that we all belong somehow. Mm -hmm. And when I know if I know I travel to, this is my first time in, in Northern Ireland, by the way. Mm, mm. If I know I have traveled this far to meet a Johnny that I have never met in mm, person, mm. and I have that sense of group identity with you, it gives me a sense of unknowing that, wow, God is at work in places beyond my imagination. And the third aspect of that is to, to help people experience a constructive freedom and to know that they can participate in this democratic way of life. You see, the, when people's sense of democracy, and I'm not talking about right to, like voting, ability to vote, the sense of democratic way of life is a sense of participation in the decision that affects me, a sense of participation in creating a new future, in charting a future. Uh, what... A, what a lot of developers have developed, mm -hmm. people that are in the field of development, development studies have done is they come up with this ideal community and go enforce it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that has not worked. But when you give people a sense of democratic participation of I am part of constructing our new future together, I am part of building this new beloved commu community, it restores a sense of dignity. And then the last aspect is it's a continuous organizing. It never stops. Because the cycle evil is real. And the call for those of us practitioners of nonviolence and those of us that are entrusted with the message of peace and reconciliation is to always know that our war this warfare is ongoing and we will continue to fight this. Like King says, I have a dream that this dream will live on and pass on to the next generation through those of us that are practitioners. Mm. Mm. So it's a war, but it's a, a nonviolent war of love, of the opposite spirit maybe, of, uh, of imagination, of creativity. Um, yeah, and it's of giving people a sense of belonging, a sense of somebodiness. I love that word, <laughs> somebodiness. And, uh, and I mean, my experience of of living in the inner city in Belfast um, <clears throat> in a, a poor socioeconomic 
community where there are walls and uh, much division was that many of those people, the most young teenagers, did not have a sense of somebodiness. They, mm-hmm. they didn't know who they were. Their sense of group belonging, they had a sense that they were part of a group, but it was definitely a negative group sense. It was like, we are not them. We are not the Catholics. We are mm-hmm. against the Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, there was not much redemptive in their sense of their group mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. It was, we are victimized. We should be the best. We want to become great again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the other side have have won. They are they are kind of you know we need to resent them. So the group identity was about group resentment, also group victimhood, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of negative group identity mm-hmm. um, aspects, as opposed to what I imagine. What you when you say group identity, it's like envisioning the best of your group and what you can be envisioning the best of your group as well as realizing that you are part of this great beloved community mm. uh, a sense of identifying that oh i'm human mm. in in as much as i look different or mm. uh think process and act different i am as human as can as the other person that i tend to agree with mm. So that sense of group identity, I belong to this group, which does not make me superior to the other group, but we are all mm. working towards this mm. great beloved community. Mm. Yeah. So we've we've taken a bit of time, and we should wrap this uh, podcast up. But maybe, um, you know, if you're listening to it, this might be you might be listening all the way through in one go, or this might be the second or third time you're tuning in uh, to this. But I wonder if we could finish. Um, by uh, just taking a little bit of scripture um, and that you kind of feel would kind of encapsulate your theology of peace and reconciliation, maybe. Is there something that you could just kind of unpack for us? In the in the sense that where we look in this podcast um, at Guardians of the Flame, uh, religion being something that's like fire that can warm or that can burn, where do you see in scripture a... a, a practice that is healing and gives life and warmth to humanity many scriptures come to mind but the vision that Isaiah the prophet saw in Isaiah 2 from 4 from verse 2 to 4 that says on this mountain on the mount, on, in the last days the mountains of the Lord shall be established and upon this mountain's nations shall stream to this mountain. They shall, I'm just paraphrasing, mm-hmm. I'm not reading mm-hmm. verbatim. It says, they shall know no war. They will turn their plowshare, their, their, their swords into plowshare. Uh, I'm, yes, I'm mixing that. I won't butcher that scripture. Mm-hmm. But the premise is, we humanity will know no war. It is a call for those that are called children of God, those that are called in the ministry of justice and reconciliation, re- reconciliation to realize that it is a mountain that the Lord is setting up. And fast forward to the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And I think the mountain of the Lord that the Lord is raising for himself is a people that are aware that are fighting for justice, for peace, mm-hmm. and reconciliation. And when that group of people continue to raise the banner and become the, the when I 
and I'm not meaning last days in a sort of apocalyptic mm. manner, but people that become the drum major for justice, for reconciliation and peace. And upon this mountain, I have faith that we will come to that point mm. that humanity will realize that war is evil. Mm. And at that point, back to the word of the prophet Amos, that mm. with justice will roll down like waters. Mm. And righteousness will be like an ever-flowing stream. Mm. So I am convinced that when we all are obedient to follow the call of God into this ministry of peace and reconciliation, the division that the prophet Isaiah saw of that mountain, it shall be established mm. in our time. Mm. Mm. And even if it does not happen in my own lifetime, that I pass the baton to the next generation, mm. but I'm still hoping that I will see a glimpse of that mountain in my lifetime. Mm. <clears throat> I'm aware that we're actually recording this on Holy Saturday, uh, which is this kind of, you know, the in the Orthodox tradition, it would be referred to as the Great Sabbath. You know, this God uh, says it's, Jesus says it's finished, and then he dies and is laid to rest in the tomb, and then that that on Saturday he's asleep, he's, he's, he's resting, if you like, the great Sabbath. Hmm. Um, and of course, it's a metaphor that of Holy Saturday for, for many of us in the world today where we, we're, um, we're hungry for, for something more, but there's also a disappointment. It feels like we've lost something. And we wonder, is there any hope? And I love the fact that you're kind of you're speaking about the need for hope to imagine that in our lifetime we could see war cease um my favorite musician is a is a canadian guy bruce coburn um he's got this line got a head full of horrors and a heart full of night at home in the darkness but hungry for dawn hmm. and i think um holy saturday is that sense you're hungry for dawn you hope for resurrection um but and of course, many of the disciples didn't hope for resurrection. They didn't even imagine that was possible, you mm -hmm. know. And for some of us, we don't even imagine a, a world without war. We can't imagine that as possible. And I think maybe that's part of, you know, taking this passage, Isaiah two. Uh, you know, on the in those last days, they will beat their swords into plowshares, mm. their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. So, thank you, Samuel, for being uh, an an embodiment of hope of of being this Nigerian ray of light that kind of came into an inner city part of America and began to imagine it in a different way. And so, you started to see change in schools and police and all kinds of systems. And I hope that as as people have listened to this podcast, you get a bit of um. Uh, inspiration for how we can also be um, practitioners of hope in our societies. And uh, I love the way you've unpacked a little bit of Martin Luther King's philosophy. We could talk a lot more about that. Um, but uh, it's it's really great. So thanks, Samuel, for being with us here. And uh, we hope to see you again. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I'm grateful for this opportunity and look forward to uh, some further conversations. Yeah, and collaboration. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay, thanks, Samuel. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, maybe I should just add at the very end, 
we continue to want to expand our network of patrons, people who get behind our work. And if you'd like to support us, please go along to patreon.com forward slash guardians of the flame. And for even as little as $5 a month, you can support our work. Um, and uh, we'd love to see that grow and expand. So we encourage you to do that.